Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Most weeks when I write my column on energy issues, I have several topics to choose from. This week, when I headed into where I thought I was going with this week's topic, the research that I pulled up actually led me in a total different direction. And we've ended up talking about electric vehicles and what actually fuels the electric vehicles and what fuels the demand for electric vehicles. You may recall back in 2008 when he was campaigning, President Obama said that we were going to have one million electric vehicles on the road by 2015. Well, guess what? 2015 has come and gone, and we are nowhere near that mark. And so we're going to talk about some of those challenges to meeting that goal, and really, as I said, where does the fuel for electric cars come from. My first guest today is Brett Smith, and his official title is Program Director, Industry Analysis and Community Activities, Economic Development Strategies Group for the Center for Automotive Research. Now, if I was to read you his entire biography, it would take up most of this segment, but suffice it to say that he is a lifelong car guy. Now, I became aware of Brett in doing my research. I was reading a piece in Bloomberg.com from May 2015 titled, Obama Scales Back Overly Ambitious Goals for Electric Car Use. And in that article is a quote from Brett that alerted me to him and his work. And he says, the zealots, the hypesters, the enthusiasts, created an environment that wasn't ever going to be a reality. He said this got going in the summer of 2008 when gasoline was $5 a gallon in California. The world expected gasoline prices to go up and up and up and technology to solve it. Two of those things didn't happen. So with that introduction, Brett, thank you for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Hey, you're welcome. It's very good to be with you. And I should mention that I, this is a travel day for me, so all the segments that I'm recording, I'm recording in an airport. So if you hear some background noise, that's why. Sorry about that. It's the uh, amazing world of technology that you can do this from any place. As long as we don't make you late for your flight. Yeah, I've got it timed out pretty well. I think I have it figured out. I think we're going to be good. So, Brett, tell me a little bit about your background and your interest in electric vehicles. Yeah, I've been with the Center for Automotive Research and its predecessor group, the Office for the Study of Automotive Transportation, for about 28 years now. And, and for the last uh, 15, 16, I've focused most of my work on powertrain technology and, and, and maybe more appropriately, how powertrain technology can, is adapted in this industry and how it is adopted by the consumer. So taking that technology from development through product development through uh, putting it on the, on the products and then understanding the implications for the consumer. Now, when we talk about the consumer adaptation, uh, that's something that has been really slow in the area of electric vehicles. 
Yeah, it certainly has. And 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 the, the quote you you brought up from from earlier from two thousand from last year, but referencing two thousand and eight and the excitement and and the and the happenings that were going on. Um, heck, it's another election year. We see hyperbola from both sides, from from every candidate. That hyperbola is happening. Um, but as you talk to and, and being in the industry working with the people that build those products, not the people that market them or the people that want to, 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 to hype them, the people that actually build this technology. I think, Marita, if you were to ask them, and I have asked them, guys, gals, in, in 2008, did you think we'd get to a million units or did you think we're, we'd be where we are now? Almost every one of those people working on the product, knowing the technology, understanding the challenges, would say, we would never have expected to get to a million. It was an unrealistic goal based on hopes, dreams, aspirations, and a lot of good intentions. Well, I mean, there are good intentions, as you and I talked about before we came on the air. Um, there are some uh, benefits to electric vehicles, and I kind of get pegged as, as, you know, a pro-oil person and therefore pro-gasoline and therefore against electric vehicles. But I think there's a really valid market uh, for electric vehicles, particularly uh, in China, which Reuters reported on last week that the Chinese government is really encouraging the use of electric vehicles because of the pollution in their cities. Yeah, I think, I think Maria, it's, it's really the reality is that, that mega cities are going to have to move away from internal combustion engines in the future, or at least the politics there are driving them away from internal combustion engines in the future. Uh, the consumer well, may have there, trouble accepting it. Well, there's a key it. point you brought up. You brought up a key point is the politics are driving them that direction, and the politics drive so much of our energy policy, and this is slightly off track here, but considering the week that it is, you know, with what Ted Cruz did in Iowa with ethanol, uh, I wrote on that last week and uh, was pleased to see that Ted Cruz won, and I'm not necessarily a Ted Cruz supporter or a detractor, neither way. I'm neutral on that, but I was pleased to see that taking a stand against the ethanol subsidies, that he was able to win because it's always been thought that you had to support ethanol to win in Iowa. Iowa. And so politics mm-hmm. do drive so much of this. Politics drives an, an enormous amount of this. Also, though, you talked of China. There are very real problems in the cities of China, very real problems in, in some of the cities of Europe with, with local pollutants. CO2, um, the global issue, is a much more challenging discussion point, but when you're talking about the local pollutants, some of which come inevitably with internal combustion engines, diesel or gasoline, those local pollutants are not a political issue in some of these big cities. They're a real everyday life issue. Yeah, and that's why I said in those cases, I I think electric cars may be the right solution because it, well, it it moves the tailpipe from the, the intensity of the population in the city, and it moves the emissions, you know, away from the city. And it may be a really great option. Uh, I mentioned in my column a report from uh, November in the Washington Post where they were talking about in the Netherlands they have the uh, second highest quantity of uh, electric cars per capita of any, any country in the world, and as a result of that they've had to build new coal-fired power plants. 
in which the coal-fired power plants are defeating the purpose in many instances. And so it, it really is a, a, a challenge. Um, if you just focus on the technology, the battery electric technology itself, it has come a long way since 2008, 2009, but it still is not near cost competitive. So as you're looking to, to clean up an inner city, you still have to understand how do we, do, how do we deliver a product that is dollar for dollar, not even close to an internal combustion engine, but delivers some things that consumers may value in, in the long run, but may not value in the decision price as they pur purchase the vehicle. Um, it's, it's, the, the pace of development for electric vehicles has been fabulous, but nowhere near where it needs to be. And I think all of these things balance. You're, you're taking the electric vehicle is taking, absolutely taking local emissions out of the picture in some areas or, or could do that. That's a good thing but at the cost you're charging, and if you're just putting it over into a coal-fired plant, yes, you're still getting it better, but you're not resolving the issue entirely. Well, of course, you know, we've had such improvements in emissions, both in vehicles and in the power plants, that, that we've really cleaned up uh, the true pollutants out of both, if, if we're talking about a state-of-the-art power plant. And you're, and you're also clearly taking it from the, the inner city setting if you're putting it into a power plant. and You're taking it out of that, that urban setting and putting it somewhere further away from, from the, the large amount of people. Yeah, they are cleaner. They still do emit pollutants, and they still do emit CO2, but they're much cleaner. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that to be a good thing, but where my, I get frustrated is the, the zealots that you kind of reference the term in your people, but I call them the same thing, the green energy advocates. Um, you know, and, and like in California, where they have this zero emission idea, uh, and, and that's, that's the state that has the highest amount of electric vehicles, uh, it, it, to me it's a misnomer to call them zero emissions. Yes, that is very true. But it is zero they get away with that, and it is zero local emissions vehicles, and that they are, but they are not zero. There is no, no such thing as a zero emission vehicle unless you do it all by wind power or solar, which isn't nearly viable. But certainly, certainly it is a zero local emissions vehicle. Right. You know, I was surprised when I was did my research for this column, and you probably know this already, but when I did my research for this column, I was surprised to see that uh, one charge of an electric vehicle ha uses about the same amount of electricity as a refrigerator in a month and a half. So to me, we're talking about, when you consider you're charging this every single night, uh, we're talking about a serious amount of electricity. You, you bring up, I think, the, the most important part of this discussion is the amount of energy that is in a gallon of gas is phenomenal, and the ability to convert that is really good. It's hard right now to um, find another energy storage device, in, in a sense, for, for, you can look at gasoline in the tank as energy storage. Um, it's hard to find another energy storage device that does what gasoline does as cheaply, efficiently, and, and in essence, effectively. Um, but it's clearly stated goal of, of many governments and of some consumers that we need to continue to look for that solution. It's tough to get, though. The, the, the amount of energy stored in a tank of gas is 
absolutely phenomenal compared to what you're doing and what has to be done in batteries or even CNG or, or even, even and we haven't talked about hydrogen as an alternative zero emissions vehicle, but even, even the storage of hydrogen. Um, a gallon of gas or gas is a, a, a energy source is a really remarkably efficient system as we have it now. Yeah, and that's kind of my key point of, of this whole show today is to rather than just say this is what we've all got to go to, which is kind of the political right now, we need to go to all electric. That if we were to do that, um, that that's not the right choice, certainly not at this point. I think that it is you cannot go to all electric at this point the, the market will collapse and that's not that, that's not hand waving that's absolutely yeah i look out in the parking lot that i'm standing in my office looking at and, and most of these cars in in michigan in winter could not operate as electric vehicles there's range issues there's temperature issues there's cost issues they're working on those and i i, I know the people that are working on these vehicles in fact i deal with them on a daily basis almost they are doing some phenomenal things with electric vehicles. There are some things that are coming out that are really fascinating, um, but they're not near-term cost competitive, not near-term technology competitive. We look at maybe the, the Chevrolet Bolt that's coming out uh, at the end of this year, beginning of next year, as the first of a series of vehicles that, that start to make it interesting. It'll have a 200-mile range um, recharge 90% of the, I think 90% of the battery in, in, in less than an hour. Um, it starts to do many of the things a gasoline vehicle does, but it'll still be $10,000 more than a, than a comparable gasoline vehicle. Um, it's not viable to go to electric in, in mass quantity, mass market at this point. Yeah. Smith, I appreciate you taking your time to join us. We're up against a hard break. I need to end there. But I thank you for joining us. Brett Smith, Program Director for Center for Automotive Research. We'll be right back with Tim Eccles, a Public Regulatory Commissioner from the state of Georgia, talking about the strain on the electric grid. Please stay with us on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about electric cars and specifically President Obama's goal of having one million electric cars 
on our American roads by 2015. Well, obviously, 2015 has passed. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that despite billions of dollars in federal subsidies, we have maximum 400,000 cars on the road. And I say it that way because that's how many electric cars have been sold or leased in this country. And when those leases run out, the cars are turned back in. And despite generous subsidies to get the drivers to buy that car back or generous incentives from the manufacturers, people don't want them. Now, we're going to talk next with Kim Eccles, who's a public service commissioner in Georgia. And Georgia, we're talking to him specifically because in Georgia, they had an addition to the federal subsidy or federal tax credit of $7,500. Georgia had an additional $5,000 a tax credit that was offered that increased uh, the purchase of these vehicles. And we're going to talk with Tim about what that did to electricity usage in in Georgia and uh, anywhere else you want to go with that, Tim. So I'm delighted to have you with us today for the first time on America's Voice for Energy. Yeah, thanks for being out there and helping folks understand issues uh, in the energy community. So tell us first, you're public service commissioner. For our listeners, can you explain what that means you do? You know, these commissioners, every state has them. They really regulate monopoly. So when you think about uh, the origin uh, of a lot of these, they began with railroads and then went to telegraph and then telephone and gas and then electricity, and most of them regulate electricity in some way today. So uh, what's, what has happened unique in Georgia on the electric car front? Yeah, we had uh, the most uh, generous tax credit in the country, just about uh, $5,000. Yeah, I understand you were second only to California. Right, you could stack, and you could stack those credits. In other words, you could buy, um, uh, if you wanted to, or lease multiple uh, electric cars and carry the credit forward. Of course, in order to utilize the credit, you had to, you know, be itemizing on your state income tax. So it... Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, every 21-year-old that could do this and get a car, but our family, uh, we we got three electric cars over a three-year period, and we learned some very interesting things, uh, both positive and negative, about the cars. So tell us. Well, on the on the negative side, these cars, while it seems like, you know, you're you're being paid to drive the car, they're extremely inconvenient. Uh, I mean, whenever I use my electric car to drive into Atlanta from Athens, Georgia, where I live, I've really got to plan out, you know, where I'm going. I've got to allow extra time uh, because I have to charge uh, in order to get home, and I've got to make sure I've got sufficient amount of time to charge. So uh, there's something in the EV community called range anxiety, and it's it has to do with wondering if you can make it to where you're going. So uh, these these cars are inconvenient, uh, but in certain situations, they work really, really well. For example, on the positive side, my daughter Bonnie drives her car one mile to school. It sits all day and then one mile home. So the electric car is really perfect for that scenario. My wife drives her, uh, her electric car around Athens, Georgia, uh, and we live on the outskirts. We have a, a charger in our home, and so uh, she never has to charge outside of our home. So uh, neither my daughter or my wife ever has to go to a, a gas station and fill up 
and deal with that. Uh, so they really enjoy just the convenience of being able to charge at home. And both of these uh, gals, my wife and my daughter, enjoy peace and quiet. They love quietness, unlike my boys who like really, really loud cars. Uh, so they love the electric car because it's perfectly quiet. Yeah, so you took advantage of the tax credits, the federal and the state tax credits that were available. And uh, in the work I do, I, I couldn't in good conscience actually do that, but I certainly wouldn't fault someone if the credits are there. Why not take advantage of them? But I take, I have, uh, you know, I take issue with the fact that these credits that we're trying to pick winners and losers uh, in the industry overall. Well, you know, here's how I look at that. I mean, we have very generous credits for uh, film companies in Georgia because we're trying to attract those, and we give them an incentive, and Georgia has become kind of the Hollywood, you know, east of the Mississippi River. We, uh, at Plant Vogel, we're taking the production tax credit uh, that's worth probably about $1.2 billion to Georgians uh, once our reactors uh, go into production in 2019 and 20. We're also taking a federal loan guarantee for those reactors, which is, uh, again, uh, a subsidy, if you will. So, you know, I think, you know, the way that I look at these is uh, I, I take them one at a time. Uh, you know, I evaluate them to see if it's best for our state. And in terms of what these electric cars do for our grid, I felt like uh, it, it really is positive uh, in how it impacts the Georgia grid. So what has it done uh, for the electricity usage? I was participating in my home state of New Mexico in a, what they call an IRP, an integrated resource plan at one point, and PNM, our utility there, our main public utility in New Mexico, uh, they said that if, for example, everybody on the street had an electric car and they all came home at the same time after work and they charged their car at the same time, that it had the potential to blow out transformers and they would have to put in new transformers. Have you experienced anything like that with the um, higher implementation of electric cars in Georgia? No, no, we, we really haven't. And I think, I think those kind of hypothetical projections are unrealistic. And I base that on the fact that diesel engines for, for consumers was, was introduced in the mid-70s. And even though we have 8 million vehicles registered in Georgia, only about 550,000 are diesel, even though we've had a very long time to implement it. So I really think that Electric car implementation is going to be extremely slow, and when we project these kind of hypotheticals, uh, I just think it's unrealistic. I, I tell you what it has done for our grid. Most of these people charge overnight, and we've got excess energy overnight. And what we discovered in a study, we had Georgia Power did a study with a 1,000 electric vehicle users that switched over to the time of use rate, and it's branded as a nights and weekends rate in Georgia. And we discovered that, that when an electric vehicle consumer switched to a time of use rate and charged their car at night, that they dropped their, their annual electric bill by $180, even though they were charging their car in the test year and they weren't in the previous year. So uh, what, what happens is these electric car users, we've discovered, become extremely energy savvy, and they actually 
start shifting load uh, into the overnight period. And while, you know, maybe we, we, we don't want every single person in the state doing that for, you know, the 26,000 people. Well, and, and, of, and of course, it's, it's benefited us. And, of course, they wouldn't all do that because, as you talked about, you know, they, they work really well in some situations for your wife and your daughter who drive short distances. For you who's driving, you know, back between city to city, not so much. Yeah, and, you know, I created this alternative fuel vehicle roadshow in Georgia six years ago, and I take a fleet of all kind of different alt-fuel vehicles around every summer, including propane, biodiesel, natural gas vehicles. Uh, you know, we explore hydrogen vehicles. I, I mean, we look at everything to try to help businesses decide if using an alternative fuel vehicle works for their particular company. And I think that's what... You know, that's what we need to, to look at here. It's not that electric vehicles are the panacea and that they're going to fix all our problems. It's yeah, and that's kind, of the, that's, that's kind of the key thing that uh, I, wanted, I pointed out in my column this week is, is just what you just said. They're not the panacea to fix everything. And the advocates of, of these vehicles, uh, you know, believe somehow that by – by pushing this, we're going to have so-called zero emissions vehicles, which is, of course, um, a fallacy because we're, we're moving the tailpipe from the vehicle to the power plant. Yeah, and frankly, I like that. I like that because we've got very good scrubbers on our coal plants. In Georgia, I'm a big advocate for keeping, keeping the coal that we have, so I don't have a problem with the fact that the electric cars are running on Georgia coal or Georgia nuclear power. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with I don't have a problem with that either. My, where I have a problem is with the, the, the folks who somehow think that's not the case. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, people make decisions for, you know, reasons of their own. Uh, but when I look at the overall positive impact of the cars, you know, I have been a fan of the cars. I've been a fan of the credit. We have seen the cars drop off about 90%. Um, uh, with the exception of Teslas. Teslas are continuing to grow in market share, mainly because uh, if you're a rich person, the credit doesn't really matter. Yeah, and they're a niche. They're kind of hip and kind of uh, fun to, you know, to say you have it and so forth. You know, there has been a, there has been a, a positive revenue benefit to these cars when we had our tax credit because in Georgia, you pay the ad valorem tax of your car up front. You, when you buy the car or lease the car, you pay a 7% uh, ad valorem tax up front. And so when a person like me, uh, I never buy new cars or lease new cars, uh, but I went out and leased, you know, three new electric vehicles, and those vehicles are all around $35,000. So the tax that I'm paying to the state is obviously a higher percentage than, say, the $10,000, you know, uh, Chevy or, you know, Ford that I, you know, that I would have bought used. So I mean, yes. our, state, our state does get a little bit of that back right off the top. Uh, because of uh, the way we do our uh, Avalorum tax here. So overall, you're you're a fan of this of the electric vehicles. You don't feel that it's a strain on the electric grid because what I found in my research is in the Netherlands, which uh, has the highest 
second highest uh, implementation of electric vehicles in the world. They've had to put in new coal-fired power plants, uh, and like you, I'm not opposed to that, um, but they've had to put in new coal-fired power plants to, to fuel these vehicles. Yeah, you know, these cars, they, they really don't use that much power, and I, I, I don't think that is going to be an issue in Georgia with 8 million vehicles. I just, I just think it's going to take... It's going to take many, many years, maybe even a couple of decades, before we have a half a million electric cars in Georgia. So, I, I just and our grid, our grid is evolving every year uh, as we upgrade it, as we add solar to our grid, as we finish our nuclear reactors over at Plant Bogle. I just don't think that's going to be an issue in the state of Georgia. Well, I am glad to hear that, and I appreciate you giving us your input from a, a firsthand user with those. And uh, Tim Eccles, Public Service Commissioner from Georgia, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks a lot. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm honored for this segment to have Christopher Tessum with us, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University for Minnesota. And I found out about Christopher through a study that he did with some colleagues. And there was a piece published in, I'm trying to see here, CBS News that I found. It was published a year ago, December 16, 2014. And the headline says, Think electric cars are truly green? Not if their power comes from coal. And this article cites one of Christopher's colleagues, Julian Marshall, and it says, 
it's kind of hard to beat gasoline. And uh, goes on and says a lot of the technologies that we think of as being clean are not better than gasoline, which is kind of what our first guest, Brett Smith, from the Center for Automotive Research said. So, Christopher, I'm interested to hear from you on uh, your, your study and what you all found, because as you and I talked previously before recording the show today, you told me that actually you were a little disappointed in what some of the media picked up on, on your study. So I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, your views on this topic. Well, so we looked at a, a range of different alternative fuels, and what we found was that um, there basically is one main way to reduce, substantially reduce uh, air quality-related health impacts and climate change impacts from, from vehicles, and that's to adopt electric vehicles and to power them with clean electricity generation, like from natural gas or from wind or water or solar power. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, from a pollution perspective, that would be ideal. But as my research found, and you're the researcher, I'm, I'm really more the writer, communicator person, but my research found that in uh, places with a high implementation of electric vehicles, that, um, as this headline says, that they're really powered by coal. Well, I'm not sure. Um, my understanding is that kind of the largest place for electric vehicle adoption is in California, and they don't really they don't really have a lot of coal electricity there. Well, that's true. California is kind of unique. Uh, I almost don't even count them because they've got such such crazy rules uh, towards some of these things. I'm thinking of in particular of of the Netherlands and the Washington Post story that came out last November that says electric cars and the coal that runs them. And uh, well, you know that. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I live in the United States, and, you know, as a, a lot of us do, and, and so yes. I mainly know about the U.S., but in the U.S., I mean, we do have a lot of coal electricity now, but since we don't have a lot of electricity car, electric cars now, we'd kind of be interested in looking what electricity is going to be like in the future, and... Um, I think it's pretty well known that there are kind of two main regulations, the Clean Power Plan and the um, Material and Toxics Standards, that are kind of um, aimed at taking substantial steps towards cleaning up the electricity generation sector in the future. Well, certainly, uh, you know, we, we know my last guest is a public regulatory commissioner from the state of Georgia, and he was talking about how and he's got an electric car actually he has three of them in his household and he really likes them and uh, especially for certain uses which he mentioned in our previous segment but he clearly acknowledges that when he fuels his electric car it's coming from the coal-fired power plant and he said you know that doesn't bother me because we've cleaned up the coal-fired power plants so dramatically uh, yeah I mean, yeah, there are limits. Yeah, there are definitely, I guess there are definitely plans to clean up electricity generation in the future and regulations mandating us to do so and, and also, you know, things going underway already. So what do you think from the study that you all did, and in my column, uh, which you can find on Breitbart.com and a variety of other sites, there's a link to your study so folks who want to, to find out more about it can easily do that. What for you was the most uh, startling or dramatic thing that you, you concluded from the study? 
Well, I mean, basically what we found was that in order to, um, to really clean up our transportation sector, we have to adopt electric vehicles and clean up the electric electricity grid at the same time. Just doing one or the other isn't enough with both. Now, your, your colleague Julian here says it's kind of hard to beat gasoline. Do you agree with that statement? Um, so I would say that a lot of the um, alternatives to gasoline that we looked at were not better than gasoline. So corn ethanol was not better than gasoline. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next. That? I wrote about corn ethanol last week um, and in my column, and because I know that was one of your conclusions, I was going to ask you about that. So since you brought that up, uh, let, let's go there. What did you find out about ethanol? Um, well, the thing about corn, so there's, I mean, there's corn ethanol and there's advanced kind of cellulosic ethanol, and we looked at both of them. Um, uh-huh. We found that corn ethanol, uh, so the emissions that come out of your tailpipe when you drive a car powered by corn ethanol are kind of similar to the emissions that come out of your tailpipe when you're driving a car powered by gasoline. The issue is that in order to create corn ethanol, it takes a lot more um, work and a lot more kind of different processes that are, are all polluting than it does to take gasoline. So you need to farm the corn, you need to make all the fertilizer for it, you need electricity to uh, refine it into ethanol and process heat. Um, so the end result is that you actually get more emissions and more air pollution impacts from corn ethanol than you do from gasoline. Did you come up with a ratio? I've heard a variety of um, data points that are out there, some that say it takes just as much uh, fossil fuel product, which would include coal for electricity or natural gas for electricity, petroleum uh, or oil in the form of gasoline for the tractors, et cetera. I've heard some numbers say it takes equal amounts of uh, fossil fuel product to create the same amount of energy you get from a gallon of ethanol. And then I've seen other studies that show it's, it's far more than double, triple, or even quadruple the amount of fossil fuels. Uh, and I'm sure that you, you guys uh, did a, a pretty exhaustive study on that. Did you come to a conclusion there? Um, well, we don't specifically look at that um, because we're just kind of looking at air pollution. We're not looking at, like, fossil fuel use specifically. My understanding is that, in general, that you get more ethanol than you use the fossil fuels because otherwise, it, I mean, it really wouldn't make any sense to do it in the end. Um, but the thing is that um, you're... Uh, you're basically, even though you're using less fossil fuel than if you're just burning gasoline, um, you're creating more air pollution. And so uh, have you had pushback on your results, like from uh, the electric vehicle industry or from the ethanol industry? Um, well, I mean, we've had a lot of lively discussions with different people, I guess. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. I read a lot of the comments on the CBS News story, and uh, one of them that I quoted in my column uh, basically is accusing you all of being funded by uh, the oil industry. Yeah, so we're actually funded from all from competitive grants, directly from the government, from um, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and uh, University of Minnesota um, Institute for Renewable Energy and the Environment, or initiative, actually. No big oil money there. Nope, no big oil money. So... 
Um, how many years did you send, uh, spend on this study? Um, so this was my um, PhD dissertation uh, along with my ah. co-authors. Um, it took about six years. Six okay. years? Yeah. Wow. Where do you see the future of electric vehicles going? Well, it seems like um, there's kind of a lot of activity in, in that area now. Um, I think Chevrolet just came out with a new uh, or Yeah, the Bolt. That's going to be vehicle. the Bolt. Yeah. Um, I heard that Tesla may be unveiling two vehicles this month, perhaps. So it seems like there's kind of a lot of a lot of activity in that area. Well, there certainly is a lot of activity, though my research um, uh, in writing this column implies that it's all that it's driven uh, by government subsidies and uh, and mandates, not not well, by. Not by consumer demand, as we're going to talk about in our final section, that the electric vehicles, once the leases are up, um, you know, and, and my uh, public regulatory commissioner, Tim Eccles, who was on in the previous segment, who I mentioned as three of them, in Georgia they had a $5,000 state tax credit plus the $7,500 federal tax credit. And he said, shoot, they're practically paying us to drive these cars. And I found that my research tells me that once the leases are up, people don't want to buy the cars. They, they, despite generous incentives from the manufacturers for people to buy the car they've been driving. Well, I mean, I guess I haven't seen any kind of exhaustive study on that. But one thing is that... Um, yeah, it may be all anecdotal at this point. Yeah, when the thing is that, you know, when the government decides what it's going to subsidize and what it's going to tax, it kind of makes sense for it to subsidize things that are kind of behaviors that should be um, encouraged, like things that pollute less, and, and to tax things that are behaviors that should not be encouraged, like things that are, you know, pollute more. Worse like, that's why cigarettes have such high taxes. Yeah, that's one example. We just have a few, a few seconds left, 30 seconds left. Christopher, anything else you want to communicate to our listeners? Where can they find your study? As I mentioned, there's a link to it in my column, but where can folks find it? Yeah, it's um, published in the Proceedings of National of the National Academy of Sciences, so you can um, look on their website or um, under my name or my co-author's names, Julian Marshall or Jason Hill. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking your time to join us, and thanks for uh, your insights into this uh, evolving topic of electric vehicles. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Please stay tuned. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy 
or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to our closing segment of this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy, heard each week on America's Web Radio. This has been an unusual day. I recorded my first three segments of the show from airports. And I expected to have a guest with me from TrueCard.com to talk about the uh, dwindling resale value of electric vehicles. And unfortunately, when I landed in California, I found out that um, that guest was not going to be available for me after all. So I'm delighted to have my friend and frequent guest, Dan Simmons, who's willing to jump in and pitch hit for me for this, this segment. So, Dan, thanks for joining us again. Oh, sure thing. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the electric vehicles and uh, their their uh, value and what drives them in the marketplace. In my column this week, I talked about how uh, they really, really, when you have an electric vehicle, it is really a coal-fired vehicle. And, and that's what the research shows. And as we talked with our last guest, Christopher Kessum, their study found that really, currently, if emissions are what you care about, gasoline is best. What, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it's just reality. One of the, so much of, of what's happening with electric cars is just, is nothing but, you know, it, it, it's marketing and it's, and it's pretty, pretty disingenuous. You know, the the state of California and other states call them zero-emission vehicles. Well, that's obviously a complete lie. You know, they're, they're not zero-emission vehicles. They've just shifted emission vehicles. You know, instead of having a, a gasoline engine or a diesel engine in the car, they have a coal-fired power plant or a natural gas-fired power plant, which is miles and miles away that is actually powering, you know, is actually providing the, the, the juice to run the car. And... You know, so it's it's just there's a whole bunch of disingenuous disingenuousness going on because it's it's really just pure PR, and you see that no better place than with Tesla. Tesla is maybe the best PR um, you know company around, and they get you know just gobs and gobs and gobs of of you know ink talking about how great they are, but. You know, and sure, it's a, well. It's a pe- people are people are attracted to the Tesla, I think, because it's it's got that gee whiz wow kind of factor. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I would love to drive one. I have a I have a an, an acquaintance that that that, uh, that owns a Tesla, and I need to let him have me drive it sometime. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a hundred thousand dollars sports car. I hope it's fun to drive. It's a hundred thousand dollar car. So yeah, darn well better know, be. <laughs> It, it, it better be, and there, there, there are great things about electric cars. I mean, that's that's the thing, too. Like, a, an electric sports car can have a lot of torque. It can really move. But 
you know, let's not confuse something that has this this limited value with you know the 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 you know all the 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 utility that is an internal combustion engine that runs on you know that runs on gasoline or diesel that will that will do anything. And that is what that's what's so great about our you know our gasoline cars, diesel cars, and trucks is that. You can do anything. I could walk out today. You know, I could walk outside. I live in Virginia. I could get in the car and drive to my parents' house in Utah, knowing, you know, knowing without a doubt that it would be a piece of cake journey for me. Yeah, my second guest, who was Public Regulatory Commissioner Tim Eccles from Georgia, told me that he's got personally owns three electric cars. Took advantage of uh, the federal subsidy of seventy five hundred dollars, and then Georgia had an additional incentive of a $5,000 tax credit. And he said, they're practically paying me to drive it. And I, I, I told him, you know, for me, philosophically, I couldn't do that. But I understand my sister lives in Southern California, for example. She's got solar panels on her roof. You know, and while I philosophically couldn't do that, uh, I don't begrudge someone who takes advantage of that. I mean, someone's going to take those tax credits. It may as well be you. But Tim Eccles, Commissioner Eccles, told me that when he drives, I believe it was from Augusta, Georgia, to Atlanta, Georgia, he has range anxiety, that he has to plan his day around, can, will he have a place to charge the car? Will he have enough time to charge the car? But he said, by comparison, his daughter, who drives one mile each way to school, uh, it's perfect for her. And, and that's, you know, that's really, well, there, there's two different messages there that I think are really important. The first one is, is that so much of this is driven by government programs. I don't think that, uh, you know, Commissioner Eccles would, would own three of these cars if, Essentially, the taxpayer hadn't given him fourteen thousand dollars. Exactly. He, he, he used you know. the phrase to me: "They're basically paying me to drive the car." And you know, Georgia used to have some of the most, uh, you know, some of the most lavish subsidies, as as, as you mentioned, and they have uh, gotten rid of those. And when they, after they got rid of the, you know, the, I believe it was five or six thousand dollars. Yeah, five is what I understand. The, the sales of electric cars decreased by something like over 90% or about 90%. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was these subsidies, it's this, you know, these incentives from the other taxpayers that are really driving so much of it. So that's, that's the first, you know, important thing. Is so much of this is government-driven, not really market-driven. No, and, and, and in is, fact, let me mention before we move on that, and I brought this up in my column this week, and that is that um, – what most of these cars, they say, the data that they quote, when we look at President Obama's goal was to have one million electric vehicles on the road by 2015. Well, by the end of 2015. Well, 2015 is, you know, obviously in the can, and we can look at the data now and see, did we meet that goal? And optimistically, they say that there are 400,000 electric vehicles on the road. I think that that's not accurate. They say there were 400,000 sold is the term they use. But that includes leases, and more than half of those are leases. And we, we hear that when, um, and this is what I've heard from True Car, because I did another story on this back, uh, if anyone's interested, look up my show from October 29th. And I did have someone from True Car then, uh, Danny Battaglia, was on with us talking about this and verifying this, but that once the leases are up, the, the people who have been driving the car for the last two or three years turn it in to the dealer, 
and the dealers can't resell them. Nobody wants them. Even and and they, the the manufacturers give very generous incentives to get the drivers to buy the vehicle, and no one wants them, and so they end up turning them back into the manufacturer. So when I look at that four hundred thousand number, I don't think it's anywhere close to accurate. Yeah, that is a that's a good point because the real challenge with electric cars. I mean, one of the real challenges is because they are so new. You know, because these cars have not been around for that long, people. Uh, have obvious concerns about the battery, and you want what you want. It's like what you want in a cell phone. It's what you want in a laptop. You want the new battery, and these uh, buying a used electric car that would that is a concern that you would definitely have. Is okay. This thing, the utility of this thing is 100% dependent on the battery. We all know that cell phone batteries don't last forever. We all know that uh, laptop batteries don't last forever, you know, in, in terms of, well, both in terms of yeah, how long Yeah, most certainly. I, I had to turn the car on here and plug my cell phone in because it was down below 20% after traveling all day, and I was, and it's a brand-new phone, and I was worried that it might cut out in the middle of our interview, so I had to make sure that uh, I had enough power. We definitely worry about losing losing battery strength. Yeah, and so that, that's, a, that, that's a concern. Now, there are some things, like if you have a commute that you're only driving a couple miles, an electric car might be perfect for you. Um, but, but the point is they're not perfect for everyone. And unfortunately, what we have and why, why there has been even the 400,000 sold is because we have very lavish, well, we have a few things. We have lavish government subsidies, like, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, but also, the, all the car companies are looking at electric cars because they pretty much have to. Um, the, under the Obama administration's CAFE standards, really it's, it's uh, you know, fuel efficiency standards for what they call light-duty vehicles. Those are, you know, cars and, and uh, you know, Ford F-150s, F-250s, that sort of thing. The, the fleet average by 2025 is supposed to be 54 miles to the gallon. And that's supposed to be the average. And so the car companies are trying to, you know, get credit so they can sell the cars that people want because last year, 2015, the number of electric car sales actually decreased from 2014. And, you know, sales went yeah, down. Yeah, and that tells us a lot. That tells us a lot about the, the free market for these cars. Once some of those subsidies dry up, as we talked about with Georgia, um, and with the lower price of gasoline, uh, people are just not interested in them. Oh, yeah, people are not interested in them, and you see what people really want to buy. People want to buy, I mean, the hottest cars out there right now are SUVs, you know, whether it's like mid-size SUVs and also like the, the smaller kind of like crossover SUVs. That's what people want to drive, and you know what? Those cars don't give 50 miles to the gallon, and they're also not electric cars. But, you know, it gives people, uh, you know, it, it, people love those cars because they're very flexible. They allow people to do all kinds of things with them. And that's what, you know, that, that's what you want out of the stuff you buy. You want flexibility. So, um, but, but the point is, is that the way for car makers to kind of deal with this ramp up, this very aggressive ramp up in fuel, in fuel economy standards is to sell electric cars. And that's why you have so many of these cars out there. You know, Tesla a few years ago, um, if you looked at their numbers, they, you know, they're, they're really not making money, but it looked on paper like they were making money. And the reason that it looked like they were making money is because they were selling credits. Like this, the whole, it, the whole company is really based on the premise of, uh, you know, government compliance as opposed to actually producing a product that, that people will necessarily, uh, you know, that, 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 yes, people want to buy the product, but the way that it looks like they're making money 
is because of you know people paying other car companies paying for credits to be able to comply yeah. with the rest yeah. of the fuel economy standards. And that's one of the strange things about, for example, the Chrysler Fiat merger. Uh, is that by by Chrysler and Fiat being one company, those little tiny Fiats count into Chrysler's corporate average fuel economy. And what does Chrysler sell the most of? Ram trucks, which, as you said, most certainly do not have that kind of MPG. Yeah, and 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 the other part of the of of Chrysler, you know, they. It rolled out just a few years ago, the Fiat 500, and they thought that people were going to buy it. In fact, they advertised it during football games. Like, that was, that was you know, they, they thought that, the, you know, everyone was going to run out and want to drive this tiny little car. Today, the other part of the company that's selling a lot of cars is Jeep. And what are they? They're selling a ton of Jeep Grand, uh, Grand Cherokees and other, you know, SUVs. So, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that people want cars that give them flexibility some people want electric cars, no doubt about it. They should be able to buy them. They most certainly should, but they're being crammed down. So we've got about 30 seconds left, Dan. It's, time goes by so quickly when you and I get yakking. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the, the story with electric cars is that it's great technology, that it's, you know, electric cars have been around for more than 100 years. Just let the market sort things out. Don't try to have – it's one more example of government just needing to step back let people figure out what works best instead of, like, getting right in the middle of and limiting people's choices. Yeah. It's, it's been an interesting topic. It's a great show we put together today. And if you're just tuning in now, I hope you'll check out the podcast of this show on americaswebradio.com. And uh, if you want more information, check out the show from October 29th, which was the last time I addressed this. And we talked there a lot about the CAFE standards. I had Sam Kasman on, and we talked about Tesla and those credits a lot so, uh, Dan Simmons, thanks for jumping in with me today at the last minute so we could get this uh, last segment done. We put together a good show, and uh, I appreciate your time, Dan, and appreciate the time of our listeners. Well, thanks for having me back. Great. Thanks. Please join us again next week for America's Voice for Energy. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.